Welcome to A Story of Us, our humanity, history, and department. This podcast is produced entirely by the graduate students at The Ohio State University's Department of Anthropology and in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. I'm your host, Emma Legan, and today we have a visiting speaker, Dr. Carolyn Dean from the University of California at Santa Cruz. She came to our department to give the 14th annual Paul H. and Erica Bourguignon lecture. So this is actually a really unique lecture series that brings together art and anthropology. Dr. Dean is not an anthropologist. She's an art historian, but her interests cross over heavily with anthropological interests. Dr. Dean, welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you for being here. Uh, The lecture you gave yesterday was really fascinating, and I'm looking forward to introducing some of its concepts to our listeners. Um, So to start off, could you tell us a little bit about what the main focus of your work is? Well, my recent work has been on Inca visual culture with a focus on Inca rock work, particularly rock carving, uh, which is primarily non-imagistic, although they do carve some imagery. So Mostly people have been interested in the technical aspects of Inca rock carving, is how they actually carved the rocks, the process, sort of the technical work done. And so when I came to the field, there was very little interest in or work that had been done on understanding the significance of rock carving. It is how the rocks were used, what they meant, um, what the significance was when an Inca or any Andean looked at rock carving, what they saw is what significance they derived from these really significant carvings that clearly the Inca's Uh, invested a lot of time in. Um, So that's been my primary focus of interest. And that's essentially what historians in general add to the field of pre-Columbian or pre-Hispanic studies, is to focus on particular monuments and their significance. And although art historians usually focus on iconography, I think we're thought of generally as as the sort of experts in imagery, why not focus on non-imagery and try to see things that may not look like anything in the natural world, representational world, but still must have had significance because they took a long time to carve and they're in places uh, usually carved in public. They're on boulders and outcrops. And so they're in places that people would have seen on a daily basis and Uh, clearly were very significant to the Incas. So my work focuses on trying to understand what those things meant to Andean peoples. Could you explain what the extent of the Inca empire is, where it is, when it is? Uh, Sure. The Inca originally settled in the Cusco Valley, which is in southern, the southern highlands of Peru, at an altitude of about two and a half, between two and two and a half miles above sea level. Uh, within from about 1400 they began spreading out of the Cusco Valley by the time the Spaniards arrived in the Andean area in 1530 uh, around 1530 they had uh, incorporated into their empire the area from uh, Ecuador all of Peru parts of Argentina um, all of Bolivia down to about Santiago in present-day Chile Uh, which makes it the largest of the indigenous states in um, pre-Hispanic Americas. 
when you say rock carvings, uh, we got to see some really great pictures. So you're actually talking about megaliths. So yes. this wasn't just um, a carving on a rock. This was large rock carvings. So could you give our listeners an idea of the scope of this? Because that was really cool. Um, thank you. Um, yes, yeah, so the one I talked about yesterday was uh, 10 feet by 39 feet. And that's a very large carving, but in terms of the outcrop that it was carved into, that's actually a relatively small space on the outcrop itself. Uh, so the Inca tended to choose large outcrops that they carved into, but they also did carve small-sized rocks, sort of handheld. Those were often naturalistic carve, um, carvings. So they would carve um, particularly alpacas and, and um, llamas, handheld objects that they often then planted into the ground, used as offerings, um, sometimes offerings to the large outcrop boulders that they carved. Uh, so the naturalistic carvings often tended to end up as offerings to the much larger carvings, which were most often not naturalistic, although we do have some examples of naturalistic larger rock carvings. From Ecuador through the southern part of their empire, at least as south as Bolivia, where there are large rocks, the Incas carved into boulders and outcroppings of rock, usually rocks that are so large that they couldn't have been moved, and of course outcrops can't be moved at all. Um, which was a way of declaring their presence in what they viewed as a sacred topography because rocks are always potentially animate. And so in some ways, it's rock carving was a way of declaring their camaraderie with the earth as though they negotiated directly with the earth, sort of sidestepping the people who lived there originally. So if you make an agreement with one of those Wonka that I talked about yesterday, uh, Wonka are territorial owners. They're rocks that own the territory they oversee. So if you make an agreement with a local Wonka, you start giving it offerings. You have sidestepped the people who were originally the people who lived around and gave offerings to the Wonka. Because if you're the Inca Empire, you can give it much nicer offerings. You can give it many more textiles. You can give it exotic shells from the far distant warm waters off the coast of Ecuador, right? So you can give it even grander offerings. And so they would literally make allies of the local landscape. And rock carving, I think, was a way of declaring their presence in various parts of the Inca Empire. And so you have rock carving, these very large rock carvings um, that declare sort of territorial presence as well as alliances with the local topography, and also declarations of power, that they can sit there on these rocks and declare their presence. Um, so it's a very sort of imperial statement as well. So that's, that's been sort of my area of focus. This is really starting to get into the, the idea of sounding like uh, ritual, which is getting us a glimpse into the culture. So I feel like this would be a, a great spot if you could explain to the listeners how your interests cross over with anthropological interests. I mean, sure. I, I work side by side with and make use of uh, the work of anthropologists uh, when I'm in the field. I am constantly consulting with uh, archaeologists as well as ethnographers in order to 
to draw out significance, you depend on the local context, which is what archaeologists are really good at revealing, right? Uncovering the sort of local context, um, as well as ethnographers then who work with local communities where rocks are still understood to be owners of local territories. Uh, local Andean people still regard mountains as the owners of much larger territories. Everything's in their view sheds. Uh, and so those are rocks from very large scales, mountains, all the way to these smaller owners of, of their local fields, which still need to be given offerings and fed in order for the crops to grow. That's a very large, since my interest really is in what rocks meant to the Inca, I gather information then from the very ancient past, what you can tell from archaeological digs, the way people in the past were using rocks, where large boulders are located, how they were incorporated into structures, all the way up through present villages, right, for how people are interacting with rocks today. So I'm constantly drawing on um, information from uh, archaeologists, anthropologists, ethnographers, and hopefully they're learning from me as well how to recognize important rocks in the areas that they're working with, maybe asking questions that they wouldn't have asked before because it just looked like a rock in the field. And maybe now they can ask uh, questions to draw out information about why that rock is left there or do you ever give that rock something to drink um, or has it ever talked to anybody? Um, which are questions that I would really like them to ask. Uh, so. Yeah, you had mentioned that when you actually go to these villages that one of the first things that happens is oh, you yes. get introduced to the mountains. Yes, yes, um, which I found striking, I think the third time it happened, that when you meet an elder and then they turn you around immediately because we're so used to focusing on the human leader of a community and making sure you pay respect to the human leaders, uh, particularly elders in any community, right? You want to pay respect to whoever the, the political leaders, the human leaders, um, the older people with the knowledge that you're wanting. And they sort of turn you around physically to point to the horizon, um, to point to the glaciated mountains, the Nevados on the horizon, because they want you to see who's watching you. And we often talk in art historical terms, um, and I'm sure anthropologists do too, uh, using the term visuality as a way of talking about culturally um, influenced ways of seeing, is that we learn how to see culturally, that the way we interpret visual materials, how we value what we see, what we focus on when we're, you know, scanning a vista, that is culturally learned. And in the Andes, you scan a vista to look for the highest because that's the most powerful thing. And so in the Andes, which is a very high Andes, which is a very mountainous region, obviously, you're looking for the highest mountain peak. Because that's the most powerful entity in, in, in an animate landscape. And you always want to know who you should be paying attention to because you're in its territory. Since I was trained as an art historian, one of the first things you learn about is one-point perspective, which is entirely from the point of the viewer. 
right? One-point perspective only works from the point of the viewer. And in the Andes, you're constantly being asked to think from the perspective of the thing that's somewhere else. So from the perspective of the mountain that's looking at you, don't think about yourself, think about the mountain. And so it's a very different way of thinking. It's not viewer-centered. It's you're asked to always think about somewhere else out there looking back at you. And then this viewpoint kind of translated into the seats that you had been looking at. So these large seats carved into rocky outcrops, correct? Right. And there were always two of them because the duality was important. If you could talk about that a little bit as well. Uh, yes, most of the the biggest, most finely carved rock seats that we're pretty sure were used actually for human beings to sit in, that is for the ruler or one of his administrators uh, to sit in, a representative of the state to sit in, um, are double seats, which, of course, if you think about seats of power, administrative power, state power, we're used to thinking about single thrones. Uh, so the idea of power always being doubled seems a little strange. But in the Andes, there there is always a doubling of power. You always have a, an upper and a lower or a right and a left because power, uh, when it is doubled, is always more powerful than any single entity alone. Uh, and that's based on the way Andeans understand the universe to be composed, that when they look at the cosmos, and this has a bit to do with visuality, when they look at the cosmos, they don't just see, oh, it's daytime. They see, and then there's nighttime, right? So there's day and night, sun and moon, light and dark, right? They see the duality in everything without which the cosmos can't run. So male without female, that, that's the end of the cosmos. Um, so they don't recognize an opposition in dualities because if one side of a duality absolutely defeats and demolishes the other side, it can't exist any longer, right? So the Incas have to have their subject populations Otherwise, there's nothing to triumph over, right? So it's a very logical system if you think about it. Um, I, I often think of, of My Fair Lady. There's a, a wonderful song that's, Why Can't a Woman Be More Like a Man? Well, because then you wouldn't have a whim, women, and then you wouldn't have human beings anymore, and the human species would come to an end. That's why not, right? So there's a certain logic. And often um, in the days after feminism, you heard, why can't men express their emotions more? Well, again, that's a sort of self-defeating argument, is that male and female are meant to be complements, and neither one should ever aim to defeat the other because they are necessary complements. And so the Andean perspective never wants to defeat the opposite. And in fact, I was complaining once about having the cold. And I was constantly encouraged in the village to just remember what it was like to be healthy. Because if you're never sick, you don't know what healthy is. Right? So you never appreciate health if you're not sick occasionally. And it's quite a wonderful, right? If you're never tired, you don't appreciate what it's like to feel great and energetic. And right, it's a, a kind of a wonderful way to, to go through life is remembering that every opposite 
means that you can value the complement to that thing, right? So there's real value in the pairing always. And so the double seat sort of express that, that you always bring in a compliment. And quite often it was the deceased like father of the ruler um, who gave then value to, so that you're backed up by your ancestors. So if you sit with an ancestral mummy, you're not just there by yourself. You're backed up by dad or granddad or you know because some of the seats are quite large you could actually be backed up by um a whole row of your ancestors to show the history in fact of of the imperial dynasty the seats you had said oh it might be the ruler and his wife and then the other one was it could be the ruler and the ancestral mummies and and you talked about how they're important overall in the culture to the community Could you explain to the listeners some of the actual roles that they play? Um, Sure. In the Andean highlands, uh, actually throughout the Andean area, uh, it is extremely arid. And so in the highlands, the practice was uh, often to deposit the bodies of the deceased in caves that where wind could pass through and bodies would desiccate naturally. So um, they're wrapped in textiles, allowed to desiccate, and then taken out on ceremonial occasions where they're fed, they're given new clothing, they're given drink, um, and sort of feted. They were taken to temples, and we have accounts of them taken to visit one another because they retained their palaces, they retained all their property, and it's one of the reasons that the Inca Empire spread as rapidly as it did, that over uh, less than a century, it spread out of the Cusco Valley in southern Peru through Ecuador to the really what is the border of what is today Ecuador and Colombia, all the way down at least as far as Santiago in Chile, Argentina, Bolivia, much of Argentina, Bolivia, right? So it's a spread over a, a very large area quickly. One of the reasons it did so is because the person who became the next ruler inherited nothing, because the mummy kept it all of the previous ruler. He kept all of his possessions, and all of that went to his family who didn't become the next ruler. So the next ruler needed to start getting his own resources, his own land, his own sort of wherewithal, so that his wife's, his wives, he was a primary wife and then a number of others, and all of his children would then have resources to live off of. Uh, So the mummies were kept and they continued to live in their palaces, um, sometimes in Cusco, sometimes elsewhere. They usually had a number of different places they could live and they visited one another uh, and they participated in rites and festivals, uh, particularly uh, rainfall. um, uh, The ancestors were very useful in water circulation since water circulates through the spirit realm. Uh, Spaniards, the reason we know a lot about this is uh, Spaniards were introduced to some of the royal mummies. There's one delightful account where a Spaniard thought he was meeting a very important man. He was, in fact, meeting a very important man. The man just happened to be dead. Um, So he was ushered into a palace. And he said, he actually explains that it took him a while to realize that he was talking to a dead man because he looked so real. 
right? Because the skin desiccates. And if it weren't for the fact that I think he said the eye was slightly damaged, um, but there were women standing there fanning away the flies. So he describes the women. Um, and one of the um, one of the, the descendants was doing the talking. But that wasn't unusual because the Inca ruler didn't usually meet the gaze of people who were subject to him. So the fact that this very important individual wasn't really interacting with him didn't initially strike him as unusual. Um, so I get, apparently it took him a little while to realize that he was talking, he was meeting, to, he was meeting with a, a dead person. Um, so I think that this is actually a really great example of how history, anthropology, and art history are all coming together and how this actually enhances your work um, and what you're looking at. And so as we kind of conclude this conversation, I'd like to ask, where are you going forward in the future? What's the, the next step with your work and your analysis? Well, I have two trajectories. One is that there has been little work on specific monuments. So my focus on the throne of the Inca, which is what I talked about yes in le- yesterday's lecture, is one example. Art historians tend to focus on particular monuments, right? So you don't talk about Renaissance painting in general. You talk about particular paintings. So I'm wanting to give a vocabulary to my colleagues of particular monuments so that they don't just talk about, you know, Inca rock carving. They can talk very specifically for an extended period, 15 minutes in a lecture, about a particular monument. Uh, I'm not trying to produce a list of masterpieces, but, you know, some monuments that they can actually talk about in a rich way um, so that people can appreciate Inca visual culture in a way that maybe they haven't been able to before. And then the second project is much, much larger. And it has to do not just with understanding the way the Inca's um, use of non-images works. Uh, What is often called abstraction is, I think, maybe not the right word, because to be abstract, you have to have something in mind in the first place, right? Abstraction has to be abstracted from something. And I think the Inca's weren't working that way. That is, I think their visual culture, um, at least as far as stone carving um, and some of their textile work and some of their ceramic decoration was not abstract. It was non-imagistic, which is very different from the culture, the Andean cultures that came before it. So in my mind, they made a very deliberate decision to steer away from imagery and the abstraction of imagery. And I really want to think about why that is. So part of what I've been doing this year since I'm on leave um, is to look at non-imagistic traditions elsewhere in the world. Some uh, African traditions, textile traditions, some uh, textile traditions in the Pacific, as well as some carving, uh, California basketry I've been spending a lot of time on, which are traditions that seem to not need imagery, not want imagery, uh, trying to think about why cultures wouldn't use images. Because often in the West, we are so iconocentric that we think of images as just natural. And we don't think about why cultures would veer away from images, because images can be distracting. 
We can look for narratives and stories, and they take our attention to other things, to what is represented, to stories about human beings. And I just would like to try to understand why in certain places at certain times, people veer away from imagistic traditions. And the Incas seemed to be, because they were such a successful imperial society, they seemed to have made a very deliberate choice against images in their rock carving textiles and ceramics, which were three of the most public, right, forms of visual culture. I really want to think about why that might be. I think that's a really interesting approach, and I'm definitely looking forward to hearing what you find and what the results are on that in the future. Well, I will let you know. (laughs) (laughs) We'll have to have you back after that. Please do. Um, I wanted to thank you again for coming out today. It was great having you here for the podcast. And for our listeners, subscribe to the podcast and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at A Story of Us, OSU, or check out our website, anthropology.osu.edu. Don't forget to leave a review of the show on iTunes. Remember, the more reviews we have, the easier it is for people to find the show and fall in love with it just like you did. We hope you join us next time as we continue to explore a story of us, our humanity, history, and department. (laughs) ¶¶